Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Good evening, Eddie Lenahan here again and this evening I'd like to talk to you about trades, Cardana. Now, <laughs> I had a very humorous, although it needn't have been humorous, experience recently. My dishwasher gave up and I have a friendly repairman, I have been with him for years, be it for washing machines, dishwashers, well not so much dishwashers because I haven't had one for too long but uh, other electrical appliances and it gave up and I asked him to come out and after a while he did because he said he was busy and I could believe that from him but eventually he came and he repaired it, he told me what was wrong, he repaired it and it lasted one wash when it gave up again. Now, <laughs> I rang him and uh, he said he'd be out as soon as he could. It took him uh, three weeks. He fixed it. It gave up again after a couple of washes. And he said, I'll have to take it away. I said, take it where you like, as long as uh, you can fix it. He did, he did, but he brought it back, fixed, a hundred euro. Now, he wasn't robbing me, 
I have no doubt he wasn't because he said he had to fit some part or other and the labour was, we all know what labour costs. But I was satisfied. I turned it on when it was filled and again, one wash. So I rang him and I explained and he said he'd be out whenever he could. Four and a half weeks. And by then I said to hell with this. I had got a new washer. washer. And it was the first thing he noticed when I came in, when he came in the door, that I had got a new dishwasher. And fair deuce to the man. He put his hand in his pocket and he took out the hundred euro and gave it back to me. And there was no more about it. Now, we settled up. There was no more about that. And the only thing that I want to say is, I was thinking afterwards, uh, what about people putting their children through university at huge expense? Nowadays, when you know that a primary degree is no good to you, a secondary degree, an M, anything nowadays is no good to you. In order to get a job nowadays you have to have a doctorate. I know it because two of my children have doctorates now and they can only get jobs on short-term contracts. And how much does it cost to get a child that far? Whereas you could get a trade like this man has and be so backed up with work that he cannot, cannot get enough time to do all the work he has to do. There's surely some uh, message there, is there not? Now, that's what I want to speak about tonight, trades. And the first trade I want to speak about is the trade of the smith. Because in my collecting stories over the last 44 years, the smith I have found, Ungawa, the blacksmith, was the most highly regarded of all. And the reason why was that he made all the tools for the other tradesmen. And the other thing was, it was believed that the blacksmith could put a curse on you. How? He could turn the anvil around on you. That was believed and if the blacksmith turned the anvil on you <coughs> bad for you, very bad for you. But there was a positive side to the forge. It was believed that there was a cure in forge water. Now that wasn't so stupid maybe as it seems to be because when you think of all the dowsing of horseshoes and other iron that went into the water in the in the what will I call it the the blacksmith's trough of water in order to cool the metal before the smith hammered it out into the shape that he wanted uh, and and heated it in the fire again and and cooled it and heated it and cooled it there was bound to be iron in that water and iron water there's a cure in that. 
Now, the blacksmith, he was a wonderful craftsman to have in your in your parish and there were smiths in every parish in Ireland that had to be because it was the age of horses. I have here in front of me a book published by Knocknagoshel uh, Parish Council and it's from 1886 and look at this regard this Knocknagoshel isn't a big parish but in 1886 the trades that were in Knocknagoshel were three blacksmiths, three boot and shoemakers, four coopers, one carpenters and two stone masons. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, three blacksmiths, four coopers. Now, I'll get to these other trades, uh, trades in due course, but three blacksmiths. And of course one of the things he did was he banded the wheels for all those horse carts that were going the roads. And outside of some forges today, no, there aren't many forges left, but you'll see the ruins of many of them and you'll see what many other ones have been adapted to. You'll see the circle outside the forge where wheels used to be banded. The metal band that was put on those horse cart wheels, the big old wheels that were on common cars. And why, you'll ask, were so many forges at crossroads on the countryside? And there were. Well, I suppose that was a convenient place. Uh, they were near everybody. Now that doesn't mean that they weren't in villages and towns as well. Oh God, of course they were. But they were at crossroads as well. Oh, and of course crossroads, well I suppose they were near this place and that place and that place and this place. Yeah, they were at crossroads. Uh, that might have something to do with laws in, in days gone by. I stand, maybe people will tell me that, and if you can tell me that, please contact me. There were great gathering places, of course, forges. Uh, their importance goes back, back a long, long way, obviously, since the great story of Kulahirke takes place in a forge. And that's the story about where Kulahirke uh, goes into a forge in great haste for he's been in a battle and he's broken his sword and he rushes into the nearest forge because he hears the clanging, clanging, clanging of the smith's hammer, rushes into the forge, throws aside all the people who are in a queue already and rushes in, fix my sword, fix my sword and of course the smith who is afraid of nobody, be he Colin or Fionn McCool or anybody else, the smith will take orders from nobody. And he says, take your place in the queue. And Colin, what can he do? Because if he, if he says anything to the smith, he won't get his sword fixed. And the battle will be over before, before, before he can take place. All right, all right, he says, fix my sword and I'll tell you the best story that he ever heard. And you know, of course, what the men of Ireland were like that time. Uh, a story, a story. Oh, all right, all right. Uh, the men outside says, fair enough, fair enough, fix his sword and we'll, we'll wait. And the story goes on from there. But, but, there's a catch. And the catch is, is, <laughs> there's a murderous side to the story. And it's the smith, right? there in back forge who, pre who, who prevents what have could have been a murder 
with his own wife as the one who could have been murdered by none other than Cuchulain himself. It's the smith who defuses the whole thing in, in, in the process, of course, of fixing Cuchulain's sword and sends Cuchulain on his way, bye-bye, back to the battle to kill more of the O'Connors, <laughs> the, the crowd he's fighting against. Now, there were so many things the smith was great at that time, not just uh, fixing horse, horse uh, wheels, uh, he used to make field gates, and there are many of those field gates all over the country yet, sometimes with the smith's mark on them, and there were wonderful gates to last, not like the old the old tubular gates of today. They collapse after a few years, even though they're they're what would I say, uh, painted with that old that old white stuff, uh, aluminiumized stuff, or whatever you call it. They don't last, no matter what. But the old gates that the Smiths made, uh, they last, because remember, it was Smiths made the railway gates. And by the Lord, those railway level crossing gates, they last forever, those gates. So, wonderful, wonderful the, the, the work of the smith. And very often the smiths themselves, because they're remembered mainly because they had to be big, strong men to do the work that they had to do. Now, the cures that the smith uh, could perform. We have, in our area here, a smith who had a cure and how he came by the cure was rather peculiar because back in the bad times when Irish people were being persecuted, especially priests, uh, the time of the penal laws from roughly 1690 to 1760 thereabouts, when if the local landlord, because all these laws were on the statute books, if the landlord or if the Lord Lieutenant or any of these wanted to be bad enough to put them into action, they could. Uh, there was a priest, he came, a uh, poor friar, he came along and the soldiers were pursuing him. And the poor man was on his last legs and he came to this forge. And the smith, he was inside, shoeing a horse or shoeing an ass or something like this. And the poor, poor friar came in on his last legs, as I say, and the soldiers not far behind. And the poor friar, he was riding some kind of a broken down horse. And the smith, naturally enough, he had pity on him. And he, the, the friar, he said, please, please help me. Naturally enough, the smith took pity on him, as I say, and what did he do? He whipped off the poor horse's shoes and turned them backwards, and off he left the friar and the horse. And when the soldiers came in a short time later, well, he says he went that way. And of course the soldiers saw well, which way the, the friar had gone, <laughs> the opposite direction, as they thought, with the shoes backwards. Off they went after him, and the friar escaped. But before the friar went, he left the smith a cure in thanks, because he was a poor friar, he had no money, and from that day onwards, that family had a cure. Right up to modern times, right up to modern times, many, many people used to go to the same family for that cure that the friar left to them. There was... 
A funny story is also about Smith <laughs> pulling teeth, for example. I heard from one old man, he told me a hilarious story how a man from Doolin, how he went to a smith when his teeth were killing him and there weren't too many dentists in the country that time. And uh, the smith brought him in. Come in, come in. No chair, no fancy anything that time. The smith threw him down on the corners of the forge, put his foot down on his chest, got the pinchers and... And he pinched it in his mouth and he pulled it straight out. And there was a second one to be pulled. And the man was crazy. And the smith and smith, he said, what kind of a baby are you? What kind of a baby? Your man ran out of it, he says. The pain in my teeth. Anything would be bearable. Except another torture like that. Thank God, he said. He swore to me that it happened. Whether it did or not, I don't know. Anyway, anyway, that was the smith. A mighty man to have in your parish. Now, the second one, the second one, was obviously the stonemason. On Sir Clicker. Because, remember, you had to have some place to live. You had to have a, a roof over your head. And they said... The, the smith's trade was the one trade that never improved at the passing of time. And, of course, the number of castles, the number of abbeys, the number of bridges that still survive from God only knows what. They're sure proof of that. And bridges especially. When you look at the arches of bridges, and you look at the number of bridges that were built for horse traffic only from an age gone by, and when you see the number of of articulated trucks and trailers going over those same bridges now that were never built for that traffic and they still survive. Isn't it a wonder? The craftsmen that built those. Wonderful entirely. But surely <laughs> the most most famous uh, mason that ever lived was the Gobon Sayer. And there are stories and stories and stories told about him and his adventures. I could fill a whole programme about him and the humorous things he did and his wife, the clever woman she was. One, one of those stories is about the Goban Sayer and the King of England and how he was asked to go over, his fame was so great, and build a castle for the King of England. Now, the King of England, he wasn't uh, satisfied with the castle he had. He heard about the Goban Sayer and his fame at building and he invited him over to build a castle. Now there was a bit of suspicion. Uh, the Goban Sayer's wife said, mm, that lad, that lad, I don't like it. But go on, go on and leave something here after you. Something you'll need. And that's exactly what the Goban did. He went over anyway. And he drew out the plans for the castle and he put the workmen over in England working on it. Well, they made great, great progress and up and up and up along the walls. And uh, the King of England, he was fascinated because it was a better castle than the one he had. But when they got up almost to the point of it, he said to the King of England, Oh, oh, we're missing something here. And you see that point of it up there? Um, uh, I can't build any further without a special tool I have at home uh, to complete that. Uh, I'll, 
have to go home to get it. No, 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 no. Hold on a minute, no, because the King of England knew very well that if the Goban went home, uh, he'd never come back. And he might build another castle the like of this one for somebody else, and he only wanted one castle like this. No, he said, I'll send over my son, I'll send over my son, and he'll bring it back. Isn't that all right? All right, says the Goban, that's fair enough, and the King of England's son was sent over. But of course, the Goban's wife, she was no fool. And as soon as the King of England's son, the Prince of Wales, I suppose he, he must be even at that time, arrived and asked for the thing and explained what was wanted for, he had been listening, of course, to the directions. Ah, she knew precisely what to do. And she says, come on upstairs, Sonny, I'll show you where it is. It is above in a big box. And uh, she brought him upstairs inside in their own house and opened the box and she said look in there now and as soon as the prince looked in <laughs> she cut him by the legs tipped him in and <laughs> down went the cover and she <clears throat> turned the key <laughs> she said that's where you'll stay now until my husband comes home and immediately she sent a message over to england to the same effect and of course <laughs> the king of england was cut her husband, the Goban, had to be sent home, and when he arrived home, they allowed uh, the prince to go home to his father. Very, very courteous and honest people. And of course, the King of England was raging, raging that his castle was never completed. But that's the way I think. <laughs> smart people, smart people, stonemasons. Now, my next one would have to be the chouinier, the carpenter. Because what good would a castle uh, or any other building be without something to put inside in it, some bit of furniture? The carpenter, of course, he was a great man to make tables and chairs and the old style dressers. But they weren't the only things he made. He made horse cars and he made stairs and he made small house gates, even though now many of uh, these smaller items, farmers, they could make their own. But also what carpenters used to make was, excuse me, I must have a little drop of this that I'm drinking. They'd make coffins on the side. And, of course, uh, <laughs> that's where a lot of carpenters uh, came into their present business as undertakers because it was often found that, you see, coffin makers, it's a steady, it's a steady business. It'll always be there. People will always be dying. So... Often, carpenters decided, well, wouldn't it be nice to go into that trade and have the carpentry on the side? And very often then, they invested in the hearse uh, and the horses, the two horse hearse, a lovely, a lovely bit of machinery, a lovely bit of equipment it was in its day. 
And nowadays, of course, you can see that, well, there's, there's something stately about them and the way they creep along. And, of course, the carpenter also made horse carts in those days. But uh, horse traps, horse traps, they weren't made locally. The timber work was too fine. They were expensive. They, of that time, they were a kind of status symbol. They were even kept in their own shed, just like a car would be kept in a garage today by a lot of people. And they were the car of that time, when there was a kind of a change over from the horse age to the motor car age. They were the kind of transition, the, the horse trap. They were an essential, they were an essential in every village, in every town. And many, many villages had several of them because they made the, the roofed houses as well. And as I said at the start, what could you do without a carpenter? It was all very fine to put up the stone walls, but <laughs> there was no comfort in stone walls only. Now, next on my list would be the wheelmaker. Sometimes carpenters did this, but uh, the wheelmaker was uh, a specialised kind of uh, a job, the rohador, the sayer roha. And you see, just like today, the world in years gone by had two ways of travelling on land. It could go on foot or on wheels. So the wheelmaker was a vital part of society and his trade was a very precise one. It would be no fun to be bumping along on, on one wheel bigger than the other, uh, the smaller than a big one. You see, you were bumping anywhere probably since very few of the roads that time were, were tarred. And let me play you a piece now from a man I recorded 45 years ago in Kerry on this very subject. Right, now, must make the stock first and how it is round, how it is round the neck and how it is the right length. And they have, they have, because they have some kind of a thing man for, for measuring, has to have the spokes, to have the spokes all round to have them in even. For if they weren't put in even and straight, when they'd be putting on the rinding around the verge of the spokes, it wouldn't fit if the spokes weren't in straight. The law for trade in the wheel, or some prideful trade. And the, the fellas above them, <laughs> you see that the spokes, the spokes aren't going in straight at all, no, and they're slanted that way. That way, anyway, from the stack up to the rim, mm. and they all round that way, out from another. And engine mice were to know for to hold that, for to, for to put in the spokes in the rim outside the well, in the, the band. God, you there's some more for treading it. Hello. Now, 45 years ago, I recorded that man. Now, 
the stock, because it had to be hard, was made of elm, and the spokes would be made of oak, and the fellies, the fellies, uh, they were the ones out along the rim, they'd be also made of elm, and the tool, the tool for shaving, shaving the timber, that was a spoke shave. Now, my next trade, I suppose to, to keep the rain off in those days before most houses were slated, was the Thatcher on Theodore. You had a choice. Did you want your house thatched with reeds or with straw? I think most people would have chosen straw for the very, very simple reason that it lasted longer. And the best type of straw was rye, rye reed. Uh, it would last roughly 15 years. Now, an old man told me that you had scallop inside or scallop outside. And scallop inside was the best. It, it looked better and for practical reasons it was better because scallop outside, it let the rain in because the rain travelled in along the scallop and well you know what the what the results of that might be in the long run who did the thatching in those days well most farmers did their own thatching uh, where did the scallops come from scallops were easy to get they could either be hazel or they could be sallies osiers and the Thatchers, well, some Thatchers set their own sallies for the scallops. But hazels were reasonably easy to come by. And they were great. They were, there was great lasting in them. Now, the next one, the next one was the Thalur. <laughs> and, and of course, the Thaliur was also a very, very popular man because, well, did you want to go around naked? Uh, well, that's important too. Uh, there were two types of Thaliur. Uh, those with their own establishments and the journeyman tailor. Most stories attached to the journeyman for the very simple reason that he went around from place to place whereas the man with his own uh, with his own establishment well he was fixed he was there in one place whereas the journeyman well, uh, I don't have to explain that one he saw the country and the thing about him in the stories that survive was that he tended to be, they tended to be small, weak men. He came in, he sat on the table, and he worked there. You wonder why on the table? Well, he could gather all his traps and accoutrements around him. And there's, there's uh, very, very good stories about all oh, the small, weak little men pretending to be a mighty warrior. Uh, Junior Crehan, the famous fiddler and uh, the good storyteller too from West Clare 
he told me a, a good a good one about this uh, tailor. He came in one June day. Uh, he had been asked to come to a house to make a suit of clothes, and he came in, ordered up breakfast, and oh, he got it from the farmer's wife. It was a warm morning. She had homemade butter and whatever else he ordered, and while he was eating his breakfast. Uh, a swarm of midges gathered around the butter and he threw a swipe at them and he buried a lot of them in the butter to soft because of the warm morning that was in it and he started counting them while he was drinking his tea and the, the woman was going out doing her jobs around the yard and he one, two, three, four, five, and he counted a hundred of them and he got a right, he said a hundred at one blow. That's fair going for a, for a, for a, any man. And as he got a <coughs> notions, he got his, uh, uh, I'll do my job and I'll go about my business. A hundred at one blow. And he did. Finished his job and off he went. But where he went was down to the forge. And he says to the blacksmith, make me a sword. And the blacksmith was looking at him. The small little man looking for a sword, and he said, well, what would you want a sword for? Your father? No, said the small man, for myself. A woman he, I have. And he rattled his purse. Oh, I don't mind, said the blacksmith, if you want a sword, you'll get it, if you can pay for it. And he made a sword, hammered it out, hammered it out. And now, says the, says the tailor, I want you to write on it a hundred at one blow. Uh, write down that on it. All right, said the blacksmith, and he did, and got paid, and off went the small man with the sword dragging behind him. Well, he got tired after a while, the day was warm, and he went in behind the ditch and stuck the sword in the ground beside him. After a while, a gentleman in a coach came by, and his man driving above it in front. And uh, the sword, the sunlight caught it, and, and blinded the man above, he said. And the gentleman put out his uh, head out. God, it blinded him too. What's that, he says. I don't know, master. Go in and see. And the, the man, the driver, got down off of the coach and he looked in over the ditch. And there he saw the tailor asleep. And the sword stuck on the ground beside him. And uh, he told the master. Huh? And the master got down and looked. Holy God Almighty, he says, and he woke up the small man. Hey, hey, huh? said the tailor. What are you doing there and where do you get that sword? Oh, oh, that's my sword. Do you want to read it? And he held up the sword. A hundred at one blow. Huh? And on went the story, a mighty funny story as Junior told it to me. Very funny story, but typical of the small men who turned out to be the great hero and the killer of giants. I'll tell that another night too if people want to hear it. Next one is the dressmaker. You couldn't leave the women out of this, could you? The gownador, the gown maker. But, strangely, strangely, I never came across in 44 and a half years of collecting, I never came across a story about a gunador, a dressmaker. Why? Maybe in the society of that time women would go to town 
uh, to buy their new, new clothes. Maybe they wouldn't let it be said that they'd uh, load themselves to, to uh, getting their clothes made. It was, I think, in the generation before that, when there was more poverty, that their clothes would be made by a dressmaker. Respectability had set in in the Victorian age. You went to town. That survived up to very, very recently. Dressmaking, I would think, is probably gone out with two and a half generations by now. Whereas the, the tailor making the suit for the funeral or for the wedding or for the respectable generation for the men isn't gone out that long. I heard many, many stories about that. Now, the next one is the shoe of the bootmaker on Gracie. One of the basics, of course. Although you hear many, many stories about people who had no shoes in Ireland, especially the children going to, sh uh, to school for all of the summer and any of the fine weather, and no shoes. Their feet got hard, although their toes very much got cut. Their nails got broken, uh, hitting them uh, on, remember, untarred roads dirt roads with big stones their feet must have been fairly fairly cut but every village had at least a shoemaker or more as you see there from the Nocknagoshal one uh, two or three shoemakers but but makers were they? No they were shoe repairers few of them actually made the shoes or boots from scratch that was done in factories in bigger towns, as can be seen in any six-inch ordnance survey map. Go to that and you'll see that there was boot factories. Um, in Tralee, for example, there was several boot factories. And the same would have been true of any town in Ireland. There was boot factories. But you'll have boot repairers and you'll have shoe repairers, shoe makers. Mm. I remember well my father's in my father's workshop, even though he was a harness maker, there was always a pile of shoes to be half sold and tipped, you know, metal tips to be put on the heels of them. Uh, because even today you can watch people's feet and you see the way some people go in and some people go out. And there was always a heap of these shoes to be sold or half sold and boots to have their hobnails replaced and more. People were walking, walking in those days. I still have his last and his various hammers and his tack riser etc. And I wish I could use them with the skill he did but what'd be the point? Who'd bother repairing shoes nowadays when they could wear out? Eh? When they could buy cheap, cheap new ones? Nobody does that kind of thing anymore. People just throw them away. Good night and thank you for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.